Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. As you do so, this morning we're coming to the end of the first section of Proverbs, which has been Solomon's opening appeal to choose wisdom rather than folly. If you were with us last week, you know that last week we looked at wisdom's longest speech in this opening section where she described her character and what she has to offer and why she's qualified to offer it. We saw also in the rich depths of Proverbs chapter 8 that the voice of wisdom is nothing less than the voice of the Son of God Himself, eternally begotten and in fellowship with the Father, inviting us to follow Him and find life in His name. Well, today, in chapter 9, we come to Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly's final appeal, their, their last uh, pitch, their closing arguments, if you will, challenging us to decide which one we will choose. I want to read Proverbs 9 together and follow with me as we read. This is God's Word. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live, and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incures injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Father, I pray that you would use your word in our hearts and our lives to call us to yourself, to wisdom, in the name of Christ. We pray it. Amen. By the time I graduated college, I had spent roughly one-third of my life competing in debate leagues. And so the structure of a debate round is deeply ingrained in my psyche. A round flows roughly like this. Each team starts 
by setting out their main arguments or their case that they want to make. Then each team has a chance to respond to the other and to offer a refutation or a rebuttal of the other team's arguments. And then finally, each team has one last speech to summarize their position and to state why they have won the debate round. Now, in that last speech, you don't make any new arguments. You don't bring any new rebuttals. Your only goal is to distill the most important points that you've made in the most clear, effective, and persuasive way possible so that your audience can hear and understand and hopefully choose you to win the debate round. Now, maybe because I've spent so much of my life in debate, these first nine chapters of Proverbs seem to follow the same structure. In Proverbs 1 through 4, the case or the main principles and definitions and arguments for a life of wisdom were set forth. Then in chapters 5 through 8, folly and wisdom went back and forth with their appeals, countering one another and encouraging us to choose them. But now here in chapter 9, we get their final speeches. There's not really any new arguments here in chapter 9. But here the two sides are summarized clearly, effectively, and persuasively with one final call to us to choose wisdom. That's the main goal of Proverbs chapter 9. Now my aim this morning is fairly straightforward. I want to look at the two feasts that are described in this passage and that we're invited to attend. Then I want to look at how we might respond to wisdom's invitation And then finally, I want to review what we've learned from this opening section of Proverbs. So that's our outline for this morning. Let's start by looking at these two feasts which we're invited to attend. In verses 1 through 6, wisdom makes her final appeal and invites us to a banquet at her house. We read that she has built her house and hewn her seven pillars. Now, a typical house would have four pillars, one at each corner. And so a seven-pillared house, which would have three pillars on each side and one pillar in the middle across from the entrance, would describe a very large house. It's a house large enough that anyone who will respond to this invitation can be accommodated at wisdom's table. Seven is also, of course, the number of perfection or completion. And so a seven-pillared house may represent the solidity and the stability, the completeness and the perfection of wisdom's house. A house held up by these stone pillars on each side. But not only is wisdom's house solid in its completeness, wisdom has a feast which has been richly prepared. She's mixed her wine, and that refers to adding honey or spices or herbs to wine to give her greater greater sweetness and complexity. Her animals have been slaughtered, prepared, and roasted. And you see that the table is already set. And the picture here is that everything is ready for the banquet to begin when the guests begin to arrive. But wisdom then has also gone to great lengths to invite these guests. Her servants have been sent out to call from the highest places in town and extend this free invitation to come and eat wisdom's bread and drink her wine. And you notice that the offer is substantial. 
because the offer is not really just to one nice meal. The offer, according to verse 6, is a feast that brings life. The call is turn, leave your ways, come dine with me, and live. If I were going to summarize wisdom's banquet here, I would summarize it in four ways. The banquet is richly abundant. The language here describes the sweetness of the wine, the choice meat that's slaughtered and prepared, the baked bread that's set out. And they all invite us both to delight in the food that's there, but also to be filled and satisfied by what wisdom offers. It's a richly abundant feast. Second, the banquet is solid and secure. What do I mean by that? Well, the house has solid stability, supported by seven hewn pillars of stone. And the meal is extensive and filling. This is not one of those meals that you go away from thinking, I sure wish they would have given me a little bit more. Now this meal fills you and satisfies you. It's weighty. This table, this house imply a peace, a security, a health, a joy that's not threatened by hunger or destruction or death. Third, this banquet is free. The invitation goes out. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Come and eat. This is no fundraising dinner with a steep per plate cost in order to get in. Nor is this the kind of uh, fine dinner that you go to enjoy and then you get the three-figure bill at the end. No, this is an abundant feast and it's a free invitation to come and eat, be satisfied and live. But fourthly, though it's free, this dinner requires commitment. You can't just pop in, leave, and go back to your same old ways. You can't visit for dinner and then go and live life however you want to. There is a turning. There is a repentance, a leaving of your old ways, an abandoning of living for yourself or of leaving your options open that's required. You see it there in verse 6. Leave your simple ways. Come and live. And so this feast, richly abundant, solid and secure, free but requiring commitment. Now, as we read this description of wisdom's feast here, we begin to hear echoes of the voice of the Lord calling to us all through Scripture. Some of you, when you hear this invitation, come and eat, might immediately think of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, where the Lord Himself calls out to His people, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. Do you hear all the same themes from the voice of the Lord in Isaiah 55? the rich, good food that gives life to the soul, the free invitation to come without money or price, but the commitment required to turn from your ways the cheap food that does not satisfy. Come to me and live. Of course, it's not just Isaiah 55. Last week, we saw that the voice of wisdom is nothing less than the voice of the Son of God Himself. 
And when the Son of God comes and takes on flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, he cries out in the same way as John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And we find Jesus calling out with the same invitation. Come, turn, come to me and find the food that satisfies life for your soul. Or maybe you think of Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 when Jesus calls to the church of Laodicea. He calls to all those in the church who were living self-satisfied, self-sufficient lives without fellowship with him. Jesus says to him, them, behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, it's an invitation to a banquet with Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, if we will turn and open the door of our lives to trust and to follow him. And all of this comes into view as we hear the wisdom calling out here in Proverbs 9, echoed in Isaiah and in the voice of Jesus throughout Scripture. Leave your ways, come to me, feast, and live. Well, this is a richly described feast, but it's not the only invitation we get here in Proverbs chapter 9. In verses 13 to 18, Lady Folly gives us an invitation as well. And if you note, verses 14 through 16 echo verses 3 and 4. The invitation is going out in the same places to the same group of people. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here, she calls out at the highest places of the town. And to him who lacks sense, she says. Invitation's going to the same people from the same places, but the invitation is so different. Lady Folly, her banquet consists of stolen water and bread eaten in secret. Now this invitation almost certainly comes with suggestions of adultery and illicit sexual pleasure, just like Folly's invitation did in chapters 5 and 7. And it might seem like a banquet of stolen water and bread eaten in secret has no chance to compare to this rich feast of mixed wine and slaughtered meat and baked bread. But do you notice that Folly's invitation requires no commitment at all? And it offers quick pleasure and camaraderie. There is no turn and leave your ways to Folly's invitation. It's pop in and enjoy some stolen water. Join me. Let's eat in secret together. Folly's invitation, of course, only gives half the picture. Remember, with wisdom, wisdom said, Turn, come to me, and you will live. It was an invitation with the consequences, the reward listed. Folly, though, leaves off the consequences. Folly just says, come in, it's fun, and leaves off the second half, the end result. And that's the way sin so often appeals to us, isn't it? Come join me, it's great. Do it, it's sweet. It'll satisfy your craving. But no other comment. And so the author of Proverbs adds the missing second half so that we're not deceived. Says there in verse 18, but the guests of this feast are as good as dead. He does not know that the dead are in her house and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. What a difference between these banquets. 
You have one that's real, solid, and secure, and the other that's cheap, easy, and leads to destruction. When I read these descriptions of these two feasts, I thought, you know, the difference between wisdom's feast and folly's feast is like the difference between eating real Tex-Mex food from the Southwest and going to Taco Bell. Or maybe it's like the difference between getting fine furniture from Ethan Allen or buying your chair at Walmart. Or maybe, men, it's like the difference between buying your wife solid gold jewelry with real diamonds and pearls from a fine jeweler's and shopping the earring rack at Kohl's. You see, one is solid, rich, good, real, but it takes commitment. The other is cheap, accessible, and it looks shiny at first, but it ends in brokenness and destruction. And how much greater even than these examples is the difference between folly's cheap water and secret bread and wisdom, the voice of God and of his Son, who invites us into his house, his seven-pillared house, to the banquet prepared, rich and satisfying, calling us to leave our ways, to turn to him and to live. And the question is, how will we respond? And so having looked at this description of the banquets, I want to turn next to look at how we might respond. Because verses 7 through 12 here in Proverbs 9 list various ways we might respond to wisdom's invitation. Now, if you've ever planned a party or maybe a a wedding and asked for RSVPs, you know that there are several different categories of RSVPers out there. You've got the enthusiasts who want to demonstrate how excited they are by always being the first one to respond. And they'll jump right in there. And then you've got the, the people who are list checkers. They're not as fast at responding as the enthusiasts, but they want a clean inbox. They want everything checked off their lists so you know in the first day or two they're going to they're gonna respond to you. And then, of course, you've got the procrastinators. They don't do anything until it's the last minute and urgent. And so you don't expect to hear anything from them until the one day left to respond reminder goes out. And then, of course, there's the group, well, they never remember to RSVP at all. But of course, the day before the event, they call you and say, I know I never RSVP'd, but it's okay if I still show up, right? You know who you are out there. (laughs) So there's these categories and types of ways that people respond. And Solomon knows that there are some typical responses, some typical categories of RSVPers to wisdom's invitation as well. Verses 7 and 8 describe the scoffers. The scoffer is aligned with the wicked, and he is settled in his commitment to folly and wickedness, such that he thinks that wisdom's invitation is utterly ridiculous. Why in the world would anyone want to have to turn and obey God's commandments and commit to this straitjacket and the limitations of what God is calling us to here? The scoffer doesn't just ignore wisdom's invitation. He actively mocks it, rejects it, and hates the person who offers it. He does injury and abuse to the person representing wisdom. The scoffer, if you will, is the anti-wisdom activist. It is better, wisdom implies, to not even extend an invitation to the scoffer and to the wicked because of the injury he will receive in the process. That's one type of response. 
And then there is the wise man. One of the qualities of the wise man is that he recognizes his need for greater wisdom. In other words, wisdom isn't this kind of uh, entity that you either have or don't. So once I have wisdom, I don't need it anymore. Not at all. Wisdom comes with the understanding that I need more instruction and correction and teaching that I might grow in the knowledge of God and of His ways. And for that reason, the wise man loves reproof and takes instruction to heart, and so they become increasingly wise. You notice in verse 10 that here at the very end of his opening section, Solomon comes back to the same crux of the matter that he began with. Chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 10 remind us that the beginning of wisdom, the prerequisite attitude for becoming wise, is the fear of the Lord, which goes hand in hand with the knowledge of the Holy One. This is required if we are going to respond as a wise person. You know, back in week one, we talked about the fear of the Lord. We talked about the fear of the Lord as the knowledge and recognition of who God is and all of His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We talked about how the knowledge of who God is will lead the wise person to take His Word as true, to fear His just judgments, but to love His goodness, grace, and mercy in Christ, who obeys Him as our God and our righteous King and authority. And it is that fear of the Lord, that awe before Him, that enables a life of wisdom to flourish. In between the scoffer and the wise man, though, sits a third category of person, and it's the simple. The simple is the one that wisdom and folly particularly direct their voices to cry out to. The simple person is uncommitted in the sense that they are not confirmed in their evil or wickedness, but neither have they chosen to folly or to follow wisdom. Now, some might consider this kind of uncommitted openness a virtue. You might have, you might have heard things like this today. You know, someone says, I'm not against religion. I'm not against God at all. I'm just saying, I'm not sure what I believe, and I'm open to whatever options might present themselves as good. Well, in Proverbs, this simpleness this uncommittedness. It's true is not hardened wickedness, but it is still on the path to ruin. You notice how verse 6 implies that in order for the simple person to find life, they have to leave their current uncommitted ways in order to turn to the word of the Lord and find life through him. I would bet that there are many in churches around the country that are in this uncommitted position. Maybe there are even some here this morning. You are not actively engaged in wickedness. You attend church. You believe there's a God. You're doing your best to lead a nice life. You have good intentions. But the crux of the issue is this. You've not yet realized that on your own, our good intentions and nice living do not bring life. We are all born in sin, and live as best as seems best to us. And so we are on the path toward death until we have personally made the decision to turn and to trust Christ as our Savior and to follow Him. 
until we say to Jesus, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Until we trust Him and His death alone and not our efforts for the forgiveness of our sins and our acceptance before the Lord. Until we turn from sin and walk in step with His Spirit and so growing in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. See, verse 12, if you look at verse 12, puts it this way. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you will bear it alone. The point is not some sort of sanctified selfishness like, ooh, I'm wise and I'm wise for myself. No, the point is you each need to make the decision. Your parents can't make that for you. Your community cannot make that for you. Either you will hear wisdom's call, repent of living for yourself and follow her invitation, or you will ignore that call, either in uncommitted continuation down your own path or in scoffing mockery of the truth. And in either case, you will bear the consequences for your decision. That's the final warning of verse 12, as wisdom rests her case. And so as we come to the end of Proverbs 1 through 9, the end of this section, having heard the invitation to these feasts we're invited to, the question wisdom leaves us with is how will we respond to her call? Will we be simple, the scoffer, or the wise? Well, we've heard these two feasts described. We've seen how we might respond as we come to the end of this section. I want to invite you to reflect with me on three things that I hope we've learned from these first nine chapters and that set us up for what's to come in the rest of Proverbs. First, we have learned the attitude we must have if we're going to gain wisdom. If we would be wise, we must fear the Lord. We must take the Lord with an utmost seriousness as our God and our Creator, the one who deserves our worship, our honor, our obedience. We rejoice in the Lord as the one who has loved us, pursued us, and saved us. And in that affectionate, obedient awe of our faithful Savior and infinite Lord, we find the prerequisite, the necessary attitude for a life of wisdom. And on that foundation of the fear of the Lord, we've seen three pillars or three commitments we make in our heart that build a life of wisdom. A heart that is quick and ready to listen to the Lord. A heart that trusts the Lord with all that we are, not leaning on our own opinions or our own understanding or our own desires, but trusting Him. And third, a heart that is guarded against the temptations that are sure to come. It's this listening, trusting, guarded heart resting on the foundation of the fear of the Lord that ought to describe who we are and how we approach life. Because that is the only response that will lead wisdom to flourish and abound in our lives. That's the first thing we've learned. Second, we've learned that the voice of wisdom that we've heard all throughout these first nine chapters is not just an abstract quality or a poetic description of wisdom calling to us. The voice of wisdom is actually the voice of the Lord Himself and of His Son, Jesus Christ. Proverbs 2, 6 reminded us that the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Last week as God opened the windows into the glories of heaven, 
and showed us that the Lord's wisdom is embodied in his son. This is so important for us to remember. It's the Lord's commandments, the Lord's voice, the voice of his son that lead to wisdom. And in that sense, it's not at all surprising to us when we turn to the New Testament and find in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Christ became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Or in Colossians 2.3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know all these treasures of wisdom that we've heard about in these first nine chapters? All these blessings of wisdom honor, success, blessing, truth, righteousness, security, life, favor from the Lord. All these things Proverbs is talking about, those treasures are the treasures that are found in Christ. If you are in Christ following him by faith, they are yours. If you are not in Christ, the invitation to the banquet is held out to you. So the second thing we've learned is that the voice of wisdom is the voice of the Lord himself and of his son calling to us, come and follow me and find life and favor from the Lord. Then finally, the third thing we've learned is the breadth of wisdom's blessings. See, wisdom offers us life, but the life wisdom offers is not some mere long days without death. This life is a transformed life according to the character of God and his wisdom. In the life of wisdom, Proverbs 2 said, we will grow in righteousness, justice, discretion, and understanding. The life wisdom offers is a life guarded from evil, perverted speech, crooked paths, and the temptations of the forbidden woman. Because when we choose wisdom and follow the Son of God, His Spirit makes us new and writes His law on our hearts and begins to transform us more and more into His likeness so that the wisdom of God and the way He intends life to be lived after His image and character become more and more true of us in Him. In fact, I think that's the best way for us to think about the book of Proverbs that chapters 1 through 9 tell us what wisdom is like and who wisdom is, and they urge us, choose wisdom. But for those who do, chapters 10 through 30 are now going to go on to describe in detail what this life of wisdom looks like. For those who would be shaped by the character of God, what does that look like in real life? For those who would know God's commandments and long to reflect the character of God, how do we do that? Proverbs 10 through 30 is going to answer that question and show us life as God intends it to be lived according to his character. To show us for those who have been recreated to live according to the image of God, how we do that from day to day. How to live the life we long for if we love our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So in the coming weeks, as we continue this series, we're not going to work chapter by chapter through the remainder of Proverbs. We're going to do so topically. As you know, the remaining chapters of Proverbs address many different topics in quick succession. So we'll look at it topically. As we hear from God's Word what this wisdom, this way of life and reflection of Him looks like in our lives. So here is where we stand as we come to the end this morning. Wisdom has built her house. She has described her feast and invited us 
to enjoy it. But the question is, will we come? Will we answer her invitation? Or will we answer the invitation of folly? One leads to life, the other to death. These are the options held out for us. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for these paths of life that are described. And how I pray that for any who might still be on our own path, a path that leads to death, that your spirit might awaken a hunger and a desire for wisdom and her feast that's so richly and abundantly described and is offered through the word of the Lord and through your son, Jesus Christ. And for all of those who have turned to Christ, who have trusted you for life, Father, may the the descriptions of this rich and abundant feast of the life we have in you rekindle our joy in Christ. And may these coming chapters spark in us an eagerness, a holy zeal to see these commandments and these ways of wisdom lived out in our hearts and lives, all for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.